The following message by Pastor Spencer is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to be with you, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> As uh, Pastor Scott uh, wonderfully uh, put, I want to echo what he said about praying for our pastor, Tim. Um, uh, he's a wonderful man to work with and a wonderful man to be led by. And so God has used him greatly in my life and in my family's life, and I trust in your life as well. And so we pray for him, that God would strengthen him and, and help him to continue to bring the word of God faithfully to us week after week. Um, so, so in his place, um, I'm going to step up here this week, and we are going to be finishing our series, I think, in the uh, book of Psalms. Uh, today we want to look at Psalm 147. Psalm 147. We'll read through it first, and then we'll dive into it and see what God has to say to us in it. <clears throat> right away, you'll notice as we, before we read it, you'll notice that it begins and ends with the word hallelujah or praise the Lord. I think all of the Psalms, 146 to the end, close and end with that word. These are hallelujah, praise Psalms. The Psalter ends on a very high note, doesn't it? Uh, calling us to praise our God. So let's read Psalm 147 together. And uh, then we will explore God's word with us. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He make his, makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, one of the things you'll notice about this psalm right away whenever you open up your Bibles is you'll notice there's no inscription above it. There's no clue above the text that tells us when this psalm was written, when it was given to God's people. And that can be very helpful, right? Because that kind of helps uh, put flesh and blood a bit more on the psalms, and they're not just abstract praises. 
But at the same time, within the psalm itself, there are clues, indications that can tell us when this psalm was written and uh, what its purpose was. Now, we can't be dogmatic about it, um, but it could give us a clue, as I've said. You'll notice in verse 2, it says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. That, that points us in the direction and has pointed a number of commentators to think that this psalm was written after the exile. Some people think it was built or, or, or sung whenever Nehemiah, you'll remember Nehemiah after the exile went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls. And they think this could have been sung during that time to celebrate the rebuilding of the walls. And so the Lord is rebuilding Jerusalem and regathering the people after he's punished them. Now, of course, we can't be dogmatic about that, but at the same time, it does make really good sense of this psalm. And it's a helpful lens, I think, through which to interpret it. Because if anyone could sing this song, it would have been those people. The fact that God had regathered them and brought them back. Now, we all know the background, I think, overall of the Bible story, but let's go through it real quick. We were reminded in the Old Testament that God long ago had made a covenant, a promise, an agreement with a guy named Abraham. And he promised to this old man, Abraham, and to his old wife that God was going to take of them, make a great nation from them, and through that nation, he was going to bless the whole world. Now, you know the story. Eventually, that comes and becomes Israel, the nation. They were redeemed from Egypt. They had become slaves, and God had promised, I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. That's exactly what he did. He redeemed them. He brought them to himself, and he made a covenant with Israel, the whole uh, group of the children of Abraham. And he gave them his law, his covenants, and told them that they would be blessed if they obeyed and listened to his word. But if they rebelled against him, they would be punished they would be driven from the special land that God had given them. Well, of course, we know the story. They rebelled, and they were kicked out of the land. They experienced God's wrath. And you can read portions of the scriptures, and you can see just how bad it was. It got really bad. I mean, there was famine. They were surrounded, sieged around. Um, Jerusalem was. Horrible things happened. Uh, fire, and you could imagine at the end of all of this, um, if, you, if you read the story, the, the king, Zedekiah, he had his children killed right in front of him before his eyes were plucked out and he was dragged away to Babylon. And the people were persecuted, dragged away to a foreign land. What a very sad time being deported, being drug away from the homeland of God's people and wondering, is God still our God? Does he still love us? Is there hope for the future? Well, we know eventually that God brought his people back to Jerusalem and began to rebuild the city and began to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, fulfilling his promise and showing them that he's the kind of God full of grace and mercy and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it would certainly be those kinds of people who would experience that kind of grace after experiencing that kind of wrath that could open up with a song called and, 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 and address the Lord right away with praise the Lord. 
This song is a song of praise. You see in verse one, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. It opens up with hallelujah. Praise our God. Now notice he says praise. Now, now praise is an interesting word. It means simply to acknowledge a fact, to confess the truth about God, to, to tell and recognize and speak openly about who God is and what he has done. Oftentimes in, in modern church music, sometimes we talk about praising God and we say we're going to do it, but we actually never get down to doing it because to praise God means to actually say something about him and not simply to say we're going to do it. So we need to speak truth about who is God, what is he doing? And as you look at this psalm, you'll see it's all about God, about what he has done, the kind of God that he is, his faithfulness and his goodness, to recite the great deeds that he's done. And this is certainly something that we know, all of us, we know we ought to do this. We ought to praise God. And, and this psalm opens up and says, it's good to sing praises to our God. It's the right thing to do, but I think there's more to that here. He says, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Not only is praising God something that we ought to do, but it's a lovely thing to do. It's wonderful whenever God's people who have been created by him, redeemed by him, want to express their love back to him and confess what he's done for them. Isn't that a lovely thing? We see that in our marriages sometimes, right? You see a marriage and you see, well, the husband, he loves his wife, he takes care of her, and she, she, she loves her husband and takes care of him. And we could say in one sense, well, that's what they ought to do. Well, that's true, but whenever we see what people ought to do, it's a lovely thing, isn't it? Doing the normal things is lovely. It's wonderful in God's sight. And it's a lovely, delightful thing whenever the people of God praise their God. And so the psalm moves from highlighting to us the loveliness, the, the beauty, the pleasantness, the delight of praising God to then giving us words with which to do that. And this psalm is divided really into three big sections, verses 1 through 6, then 7 through 11, and 12 through 20. Three big sections. Each section begins with a call to praise God. In verses 1 through 6, the psalmist here says that we should praise God because he is the maker of the stars. The maker of the stars is the healer of the brokenhearted. He goes right away and says, it's a beautiful thing to sing to God. And he says right away, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Now, this would have been very important if we're thinking that these people sang this psalm after the exile. Remember that Jerusalem was, was, was destroyed. There's stones and fire and ashes all over the place. It's a shameful, very sad situation. The Lord himself was the one behind the Babylonian army destroying Jerusalem. Why? Because they had abandoned God. They thought that they could do it better on their own. And so God destroyed the city. But now these people have come back and they see the Lord has begun to rebuild what he destroyed. He's faithful and kind. They knew that they deserved God's wrath. 
They had seen it firsthand, their king taken away, their their families destroyed, their city destroyed, their temple destroyed. God opposing them with all of his opposition, his holy wrath. But once what he had destroyed, the Lord is now putting back together. He also regathers the outcasts of Israel, the ones who have been banished. Remember, God had told them, you can live in my land, you can be in my place as long as you listen to me. But whenever you choose other gods, you can't live in my place. God did this with Adam and Eve, didn't he? They could live in his garden with him as long as they listened to his words. But whenever they decided to go off on their own way, he said, no, you can go out that way. And so he banished them. And the same thing happened to Israel. You cannot live in God's special place and not be changed by him. And so, likewise, they were banished, they were exiled, put away from God. They knew these people did. They knew that their sins had made a separation between them and God. And the same is true for us, isn't it, by the way? Just as these people knew that their sins had made a separation between them and God, so you and I if we're honest with ourselves, realize that our sins, the fact that we do not love God as we should and we don't love other people the way we should, that's made a a separation between us and our God. And how in the world can we overcome that separation? Well, these people knew that God was gracious. He, He brought them back to himself. He brought back the banished ones, the exiled ones uh, back to him. He had promised this long ago in Deuteronomy 30, verse 4, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And so you could imagine these believers under Nehemiah, perhaps, or sometime then seeing this psalm. They were the outcasts, and now they've been brought back to the Lord's presence. In verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Uh, These people were captives and and they were ashamed. It was a shameful thing to be dragged all the way to Babylon, to be made slaves again. And you could imagine the despair, the sadness. Is God still our God? Is he going to forgive us? Is he going to restore us again? But the Lord says... No, I will heal you, and I will forgive you, and I will bind up your wounds. The Lord himself says that he was the one who inflicted these wounds in Isaiah 30, verse 26, but he's the one also here who heals the wounds that he had inflicted. He is restoring those that he had cursed. Now, I think one of the things we realize right away is that if we're going to sing this psalm with these ancient Israelites, the first thing we have to realize is that we are broken and that we're sinners. Because you can't sing and rejoice in the fact that, Lord, that the Lord rebuilds and regathers and restores and heals if you don't think you need healed, if you don't think you need rebuilt. Remember, Jesus would say eventually, I did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. I didn't come for the people who think they've got it all together. I came for the sick. And that's similar here. The Lord comes and binds up the brokenhearted. He heals us, but only, and we will only get that, and we will only rejoice in that if we really think that we're broken. Verse 
It's interesting how the, the writer here moves from talking about what God has done for Israel to what he's done in creation. This is an interesting thing he does in this, this psalm. He moves back and forth from who God is towards Israel to who he is for the whole world. He begins in verse four and he says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. The Lord who heals the brokenhearted is the one who's appointed, determined, counted, and made the stars. Now, you can go on Google, and you can go type in and type in how many stars are there in the universe. Well, the numbers are astounding. The numbers are astounding simply in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are millions upon millions probably of galaxies. The Lord made the stars and appointed them. He knows every single one of them. He knows every single flare that comes up from one of those stars. He knows every ounce of fuel that it's using. He knows every single degree of the heat that it puts off. He knows it all. The Lord knows the universe. And so this leads the psalmist to say, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He's infinite in power and infinite in wisdom and understanding. And certainly if the Lord knows how to group together these stars and galaxies, surely he knows how to regroup us back to himself. The maker of the stars is powerful enough to hang them in the heavens. He's powerful enough to redeem us and to bring us back to him. The psalm closes the first section and says in verse six, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts down the wicked. The humble are those not who go around like you and I think about humility, people who are going around and saying, oh, you know, woe is me, or I'm just such a bad person. The reality is that such people are really not that humble. They're just thinking about themselves. The humble are those who realize that they, they don't have anything good in themselves. Do you, they, they realize, and they've been, they've been afflicted by God, they've been uh, to, made to realize their bankruptcy morally, to realize that I'm a sinner. I don't have anything to offer God. I don't have anything to give him to buy his love. And, and everything I have that's any good in me is simply because he's worked it in me. That's the humble. And God raises those up. But the wicked, he lowers to the ground. The wicked are those who don't think they need rebuilt. They think they've got it all together. And it's a good warning to all of us that the God of grace is a God of grace and he wants us to emphasize that, I think. But for those who reject his grace, they've chosen his wrath and he will bring them low. If we assume that these exiles are here singing this psalm, we, we know, however, that the whole nation hasn't been healed completely. If you read the story of Nehemiah, you remember, or is it with Ezra? Actually, whenever the people lay the foundation of the temple, they're rebuilding the temple from what it was. You remember what the old guys do? They start crying. Why? Because this rebuilding that we're doing right here, they're saying, 
it's not like it was back then. We're not able to make Israel great again. We're not able to restore it back to its glory. They knew that God had only begun to restore his people, to heal them and to show them his grace and his love. It's only the beginning. They were looking to a servant Because you remember a a while ago, Isaiah had prophesied before these guys had come along that there would be a servant that would come. And this servant would come and would say this. He would say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. They were looking forward to this servant who would come ultimately and proclaim good news to the poor and heal the brokenhearted, the one who would do it fully and completely. And the reality is, is that the maker of the stars became the bearer of the cross and took upon himself our sin and our shame and his body on the tree. And it is by his wounds that we are healed We were outcasts and straying far from God, but we have been brought near to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The maker of the stars is the healer of the brokenhearted. Secondly, he points out here in verses 7 through 11 that the sustainer of the young ravens, the one who does that, is the lover of those who hope in him. He reminds us right again, we come back into verse seven and he says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God on the lyre. It's a praise, rejoice, be be grateful for who this God is. And it, it goes right into creation and it talks about what our God does. It says he covers the heavens with clouds. He puts clouds all over the sky. Now, we've seen clouds roll in across the sky, haven't we? One of the things about Michigan, right, in the wintertime, you get lots of clouds that just stay permanently. And it's gray all the time. One of the things I remember as a kid growing up in southwest Missouri where we would have tornado alarms often and hear the sirens go all the time is the feeling and the power of those clouds rolling in across the Ozarks. To see them black and full of water, to see the thunder and the lightning, even from a distance. Sometimes too, right, uh, you can can feel the cold breeze blow in whenever the storm comes in. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, you think about Job, whenever God shows up, there's a storm that comes. There's rain and there's power. What does that do to us? It reminds us how small we are. And here God, he's putting clouds in the sky, putting them all over, and you can feel the wind pick up, and God the creator prepares rain for the earth, he says. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the fields. God is the one who gives rain on the earth and sends the water on the fields. Elsewhere, we read in Psalm 104, From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Again, Psalm 65, verse 9, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. 
One of the things that's maybe sad is the fact that we overlook these marvels so much of the time, don't we? Have you ever thought about when the thunderstorm comes in that God's moving that in? God is the one watering the ground. God is the one making the grass grow up. Sometimes whenever we have a, uh, when we lack water, right, our, my, my yard can turn brown. The Lord is the one who makes the grass grow. The Lord is the one that really is the source of life for all of creation. We see that he causes the grass to grow and then in verse nine, he gives to the beasts their food. God is... I mean, I don't want it to be too irreverent, but God's like a zookeeper. He goes around and feeds all of the animals exactly what they need, sustaining them. He even goes, it says, to the young ravens. Ravens are not the most wonderful-looking birds, right? You'd rather choose a parakeet or a canary or something like that, but a raven, even the young ravens, they're crying out there, they're opening their mouths up in their nests, and God comes and feeds them even. What a good God we have. And the psalmist is wanting us to meditate on creation. Perhaps we need to just sit outside and observe. Um, I think it was one old author that said the, the, the world is the theater of God. It's a high-definition theater of God's goodness, showing us the kind of God that he is. Everyday marvels But the amazing thing is, and he he moves from this now to us as people, that if God so takes care of those birds, what do you think he's going to do for us? I remember somebody else who made an analogy like that. In verse 10, his delight, talking about God, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. He doesn't take pleasure in earthly strength. The Lord doesn't delight whenever we try to really work up something special for him. God's delight is not in, in whenever we try to trust our own abilities or the abilities of something else. The, the horse is often a picture in the Old Testament of a war horse. I mean, today we think about like a, a tank or a panzer tank or a, a certain airplane as being a symbol of military might. Well, in the ancient world, that was the war horse. You read in Job where he describes the horse and he paws at the ground and he snorts. If you've ever seen... Um, Uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. Remember those vicious guys that are in black and they've got those horses, right? You can imagine the snorting. and, And that's what is pictured here, the horse with all of his might and all of his sinews working. The Lord doesn't delight whenever we trust in that. The Lord doesn't delight whenever we trust in our own abilities to take care of ourselves. The Lord doesn't delight in that. What does the Lord delight in? He takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. As these Israelites are seeing this psalm, one thing they are not is powerful. They're underneath the heel of a foreign enemy, the Persian Empire, right? They've experienced a lot of humiliation, a lot of degradation. They don't have chariots and horses and spears and swords and thousands upon thousands of men to fight battles. They're surviving. But they can hope in the Lord. 
The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Remember, God had told his people long ago in Deuteronomy chapter 8, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, God wants us to trust him with everything. Now we can say that and say, yeah, of course I trust God with everything. But then we're going to leave this place and wake up tomorrow morning and we're going to be concerned about everything. We're going to be anxious. Remember Jesus said, right? You don't be worried about everything else. You trust your father in heaven because if he takes care of the birds and he takes care of the lilies like this, he's going to take care of you. He's your father. And he's going to oversee you. He's going to take care of you. You seek his kingdom and he's going to throw everything else in. You seek his kingdom, he'll take care of you. You're his child. And that's what God wants us to do, to trust in him, to see that he is the source of life. He is our life. John, in in his gospel, we read that this is eternal life, to know God. And ultimately, this is where it lies for salvation, doesn't it? Salvation is not about what you bring to God. Salvation is not you transforming your life so that you're better internally. Salvation is not doing anything like that because you can't buy God's love because you're a sinner. Salvation is hoping in his mercy. The word hope, by the way, is not simply optimism. It's confident expectation that God is able to do what he's promised just like Abraham did, Romans chapter four, right? He, he believed that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, in Abraham's case, it didn't look like that could happen, right? He's an old man, she's an old woman. People like that don't have kids. Well, God calls into existence the things that are not. We trust his power. And so these Israelites are putting all of their chips on God, They're putting all their chips, everything they've got, they're going to put it on God's mercy and God's grace. There's one uh, translation of this or a a version of this psalm that's been put to uh, music uh, for singing, and it says, No human might, no earthly pride delights the Lord above. In them that fear him, he delights. In them that trust his love. When we put all of our chips on God's grace, we're not put to shame. Because years later, God would send his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. And God sent his son to save his people from their sins. God kept his promise and he made atonement for the sins of his people. And so God delights whenever you put all of your chips on him. When you put all of your chips for heaven and for eternity on Jesus Christ and what he's done. Whenever you trust in the fact that 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem, there's a guy that died, and we believe he actually bore our wrath and took away our shame and rose again on the third day and is ascended at the right hand of God, and that one day he's going to come back. We really think that happened. And I'm going to put my chips on him because he's done it all. And because of that, I want to live for him now. 
And Jesus, similarly, is amazed and is delighted whenever you trust him. Remember what he said to that, that uh, woman, that Canaanite woman? Remember when she came to him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, come and heal my daughter or cast out the demon. He said, hey, I wasn't sent to anybody but Israel. I'm not supposed to go to the Gentiles yet. And what does she do? She argues with him and he says, you know, it's not right to give the bread to the dogs, the children's bread to the dogs. And she says, yes, Lord, but even those crumbs fall from the master's table. One crumb that falls from your table is enough to do what I need. And Jesus said this, oh woman, great is your faith. Jesus was excited. And similarly, whenever that man hung on the cross right beside him and he has very little theology, very little understanding of what's going on, but he just knows this, I'm on this cross and Jesus doesn't deserve to be here and he's here anyway. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that little bit of faith, looking to Christ alone to save, Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He delights it when we hope in his steadfast love. He heals the brokenhearted. He's the maker of the stars. He loves those who put all their trust in him, and he's the one who feeds the young ravens. And lastly, in 12 through 20, he's the commander of the weather, who is the, I'm using the word benefactor. You could use the word blesser, the one who takes care of Israel. Um, Benefactor is kind of a big word, and it may not be fun to write, but the commander of the weather is the benefactor of Israel, is the blesser of Israel. And you'll see what we mean by that when we get to it. In verse 12, again, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And then in verses 13 to 14, he lists what God does for Israel. And you've, I've got four Ps here, if you want to put what he does here in verses 13 to 14. The Lord God gives Israel protection, prosperity, peace, and provision. He gives protection, prosperity, peace, and provision. He is the one who strengthens the bars of your gates. Now, you know that if your gate is weak in the ancient world, who's going to come through it? All of your enemies. So you've got to have strong bars to keep the enemies out. And the Israelites here are reminded, maybe as they've just rebuilt those gates, ultimately it doesn't matter what we do, how strong we try to make them, if the Lord doesn't make those gates strong. It's vain unless the Lord builds the house. He protects Israel. The Lord prospers Israel. He says, he blesses your children within you. These people have known God's curse, but now they know his blessing. He's the one who gives them prosperity and salvation. He gives peace to Israel. Because in the past, all they've known is war before this. It's only within a kingdom where peace rules that the people can thrive. And the idea of peace in the Old Testament doesn't simply mean that there's no conflict. It has the idea of wholeness, that everything is the way it should be. Think about the end of fairy tales, right? And they all lived happily ever after. And that's what God's doing here. He's, everything's back the way it should be. He takes all the random pieces, wherever they may be, and puts them back together. And lastly, he says he provides for Israel. He, he fills you. He satisfies you, not only with wheat, but with the finest of the wheat. 
Now that's an interesting thing to say, all these things, because that makes it seem like if I follow God, everything's gonna be golden and rosy and awesome. Sign me up for that God, right? Everything's gonna always be okay, but that's interesting, the fact that these people are singing this psalm when everything's not all okay. I mean, the Lord's restored them, but it's not what it was in the past. It's not Solomon's kingdom, and it's certainly not perfect. Even in Solomon's day, things were not perfect. That's why everything started going downhill after Solomon died. So why are they seeing this? Why are they saying this? How could they sing this at a time like this? And I think it would be interesting if we were to go to them and say, what are you talking about? How can you say this about your city? I wonder if the Old Testament saints were sent, would come up to us and say, you thought I was talking about this earthly city? I'm not talking about that one, they would say. I'm hoping in the next world, we're told that the Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11, he tells us that they were looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They desired a better country, a heavenly one. They're looking forward, ultimately, to what God has in store for them when he restores all things. The Lord had taken care of them now, yes, but they knew they were looking to the last day, just like you and I are. They didn't have all, as many details as we do now, but they were looking for it and trusting in it. He moves in again after talking about how God blesses Israel to talking about creation again. And this is near to my heart because he talks about snow. And um, so if you know my last name, Snow, you'll know that this is, this is an important uh, part. This is wonderful to see that you have a biblical name. Um, so, in verse 15, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. The Lord is a God who speaks, and he's described here like a commander, like a king, like a general, like a ruler, and he dispatches his word to the earth. Like a king who sends an important message to someone in his kingdom, so God sends out his command, and it's like a messenger takes that message to the earth, and his word runs swiftly. Now, sometimes we can send a letter to somebody, particularly in this area for some reason, and, uh, but, and it can take forever to get to somebody, right? I mean, we've seen that. It gets lost in the mail. But God's messages never get lost in the mail. God's messages never arrive late. He's faster than Amazon Prime. So he's, he's quick, and his words go right there. He speaks. When God says, let there be light, there is light. He uses this then. God sends out his command. He speaks his word. And then in verse 16, he gives snow like wool. God speaks. And the snow comes. In Job 37, 6, we read about God. To the snow, he says, fall on the earth. I remember some uh, friends from Brazil who had come to move to Michigan to go to seminary. And it was interesting to watch them because they're from a very warm part of the world, right? And they saw snow. 
One of the things I remember them talking about was the fact that it was so quiet. When snow falls, it's not like rain, which has got the pitter-patter all over and thunder and lightning. It's quiet. It falls gently to the earth. It's peaceful. And it's like wool that just lays across the ground. God scatters frost like ashes. It's, the picture's almost like with his word, God takes all this frost that he's got in his hand and he just distributes it wherever he wants. Covers the ground like a powder. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. The ice is pictured to be like pieces of bread broken up. And he just takes them and he, he throws them down up on the earth. And it's after this that he says, the psalmist does in verse 17, who can stand before his cold? It's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is nobody. But it's interesting because living in Michigan in the 21st century, it can be easy for this statement to not really hit us particularly if we lived up in the UP or up on the Keweenaw Peninsula where they get dumped on for most of the year. Remember, the Israelites did not live in Michigan. And so snow was not the thing it is for us. There was, it was a much rarer thing. When snow came, it was special. And they did not have clothing or the housing or the experience of living in a cold region like we do. But at the same time, if you and I go out in the middle of February after one of those uh, snowfalls, and we go out in our cargo shorts and a polo, and we go stand outside in the snow, you're not going to last too long, right? And if you do, you're probably going to get frostbit, hurt, or sick. You go up there up north, and you go stand on the banks of Lake Superior, and you let the snow fall on you, you let the breeze blow off that cold lake, right in your face for a while, and you'll be wanting a hot fire after a while. Who can stand before his cold? It's interesting, if you know military history, um, you know that uh, snow has been used to stop some pretty powerful people. In particular, you think about Napoleon, the great general of France, and then Hitler in World War II. Both tried to invade Russia, and perhaps just as much, if not more, what stopped them was the snow. All of the power and the might of tanks and the military and guns, they come to a halt in the face of God's snow. Perhaps that's why in Job we read that he's prepared snow for the day of war. We cannot endure God's cold. We cannot control God's cold. And yet, that same God who does things that we can't endure, who does things beyond our power, sends out his word and he melts the snow. Verse 18. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He melts it. He speaks and the wind goes across it, maybe bringing warmer temperatures and the waters are let loose and flow. The river raisin gets full, doesn't it? And all that snow and that water melts and flows into it and it rushes. The waters flow, it's let loose. 
You see, God speaks and things happen. His word is a living word, and his word does not depend upon you or me ultimately for its fulfillment. God doesn't wait for the snow or the ice or the wind to obey him, and he doesn't have to bargain with these things. They obey his commands. What he says will happen will happen. The Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And yet the amazing thing is to Israel and to us is that the God who controls all these things by his word has chosen to speak to us as well. In verse 19, he blesses his people, we saw earlier, with all of those blessings, but now especially with his word. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. It's amazing. The living God who speaks things into being is the God of Israel. He, is, he declares his word to Jacob. Moses would teach the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 4. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Friends, every time you come to church and you hear somebody read from the Bible, you and I should both be amazed that we're still living. I get to come to church and leave alive. That's an amazing thing. He speaks his word to Israel. And it was an amazing privilege. He says it's unique. God didn't do this with any other nation. The other nations don't know his rules. They don't know about the kind of God that I am. They have gods that require them to do all sorts of works in order to buy buy the love of their God. They've got a God who calls them to do amazingly horrible things, maybe even sacrificing their children in order to buy the love of God. But God says, I'm not like that. I am more concerned for your salvation than you are. I love you. The same God who spoke to Israel and declared his word to Jacob has spoken again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's these verses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. He has declared his word to us by his son. God has declared a great and a final salvation to Israel, but not only to Israel, to the whole world, to you and me. As the apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that this promise of the gospel, of the forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God, being made right with him through Christ, this promise is for you and for your children and for all of you who are far off. As many as the Lord our God calls To himself. We who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has declared his word to you, his promise of salvation, and offers it to you. What a wonderful privilege it is to be a Christian. Being a Christian isn't some dopey, boring thing, it's the most exciting thing in the world to come to church and not die and to know 
that we will know the living God forever and ever and that he has sent his son to die for us. What a privilege it is to be part of the people of God. This should make you want to come to church. This isn't a burden. You get to show up at church and hear God from the book, not, not a pastor, but ultimately, the ultimate teacher of is God himself, tell you that if you trust in him, you're forgiven. If you repent, you will be cleansed and come back to him. What a wonderful thing that is. And we are his treasure. And lastly, he tells us that he will be our God and we will be his people. And what he has begun to heal us in our broken hearts and our sins and all of the struggles of this life, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise the Lord. Isn't it a wonderful thing to praise God? Because it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Amen. Let's pray together and ask God to bless his word to our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. That you are not a God who pushes us away, but you hold open arms ready to receive us if we will look to you. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins we have in Jesus Christ, and we pray, Father, that if there be anyone here who does not know you, if there's anyone here who does not know the joy of knowing you, that you would draw them to yourself. We pray, Father, that you would take your son by the power of the Holy Spirit and strengthen your people, that you would help us all to see the wonderful privilege and honor it is to be found in Jesus Christ because you have not dealt thus with any other people. We bless you for Christ's sake. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Spencer from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.